Welcome to this ESIP online conversation. My name is Frederick Eriksson and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Professor Michael Bernstein, a distinguished scholar at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where he researches long-term economic trends and how they play out in different economic systems. A lot of his work has focused on Russia and he has published several books on, among other subjects, Russia's banks and corporate debts. In early February, Michael published an article in The Hill that outlined an economic deterrence measure by Western governments that would be credible to sanction Russia's central bank and make it impossible for Russia to access the part of its foreign reserve that is stored with other central banks. I found it a very interesting article because such a measure undermines the widely publicized idea that Russia sits on a 630 plus billion US dollar foreign exchange reserve that can be tapped to take care of the economic and financial fallout from Western sanctions. Officials in Brussels and finance ministries that I shared the article with responded mostly with disbelief, calling it a wild and even crazy idea. However, this past weekend, this is, is exactly what Western governments did. They followed the logic of Michael's idea and has now blocked Russia from using a big part of its foreign exchange reserve. And it's the design and consequences of this action that I want to talk to Michael about. Michael, thank you so much for joining this conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure and uh, thank you very much uh, for inviting me. So we're going to come to the design of the central bank sanction in a minute, but I wanted us to start the conversation in Russia's financial markets since the weekend. It's a bit difficult to get exact details about the day-to-day -day developments, but we have seen the ruble falling heavily, and there have been many footages of Russians trying to get cash out from ATMs. Russia's central bank raised the central policy rate from 9.5 to 20%. Already over the weekend, the European Central Bank reported that the European branch of Sberbank was failing, and the expectation seems to be that many more Russian bank subsidiaries are already on the ropes. So can we start here, Michael? How fragile is the Russian financial system now? Uh, before the sanctions, it was very sound, and now it is fragile and very vulnerable. The sanctions hit the foundations of the Russian financial system because uh, uh, the central bank cannot support the domestic currency, the ruble. It cannot bail out uh, the financial institutions, especially commercial banks where people hold deposits, the savings bank, and it cannot secure uh, the payments uh, between businesses. So uh, generally, uh, it's a very, very vulnerable and fragile situation now. Uh, today, uh, the Russian Central Bank website went silent. Yesterday, it was full of capital controls, new measures. They have everything under control. Today, they keep silent. The ruble continues to fall. Uh, the uh, exchange sources show that uh, at the moment, it looks like uh, at this minute, it is 128 rubles for a dollar used to be 80 so it's more than uh, uh 50 percent increase in the value of the dollar in the, of, the dollar, of the dollar in a few days i see there is already some commentary suggesting that we are on the verge of a bank run uh, and the classic image of course of a bank run is people running to the bank to take out their uh, money from the bank because they expect the money to lose value uh, very quickly if money 
maintains within the banking system. Is that what we're seeing now? Yes, absolutely. And actually, it's even worse than that because there are two bank, bank runs. One is on uh, foreign exchange-denominated deposits and dollar and euro-denominated deposits. The Russian public and the Russian businesses hold about uh, $268 billion in foreign-denominated deposits. And it's not Chinese yuan, it's uh, the United States dollar and uh, a bit of uh, Japanese yen, a bit of British, Great British pound, but mostly it is uh, dollars and euros. And uh, of course, uh, no bank has this kind of liquidity, no, no cash. And so uh, one estimate I saw is that all the banks, including Russian branches of Western banks, Deutsche Bank, uh, Citi, Chase, uh, they have about $46 billion in cash on hand. I doubt it sounds too much. But even that, $46 billion supposedly they have, $268 billion are the claims on the banks that people would like to withdraw because they're afraid that the banks uh, will not sustain. And uh, so that's one run. And the other run is the run on the ruble because uh, the central bank can print as many rubles as they want. So people are not afraid that they will come to the bank and the rubles were not there. They're afraid that they will come to the banks and the banks won't be there because the banks will collapse, because the banking system will collapse because of the run on the dollar. So this situation is a vicious circle because people run to the ATMs, huge queues, they want to withdraw cash in rubles, and the central bank provides more rubles, it increases the inflation, which reduces the value of the ruble, and therefore people want to withdraw more rubles and spend it immediately because of the inflation. So this feeds upon itself, and that's a vicious circle. And if we would look at uh, the holders in Russia of accounts with uh, foreign-denominated bank deposits, who would that be? Are we talking about, is it corporate uh, accounts, or do we also talk about household accounts that we have individuals and private, private households that also have savings in... Uh, a deposit account that is denominated in, say, the US dollar or the the euro? Uh, both. It is both. Uh, the largest bank in Russia is a savings bank. It is state-owned. Uh, well, it is owned by the central bank, and the central bank is a state institution. So it is a state-owned savings bank. It's an old bank. People trust it. Most people have deposits there. It uh, has about, uh, I forgot, 60% or 80% of all assets of the Russian banking system. And it is there that households, individuals, hold uh, foreign currency-denominated deposits. And, uh, of course, uh, businesses also hold those deposits, so it is both. Largely, it is households, individuals, because businesses use them for transactions, but because businesses import Western inputs, uh, they need uh, these uh, dollars and uh, euros because that's how the trade uh, uh, international trade is being done. All right, so let us now turn to the actual um, central bank measures that came from the United States and the EU over the weekend and that now are being implemented. There are two things I want to talk to you about here. And the first 
are about the central bank actions themselves. Can you explain, please, what, what did the Western authorities decide to do? Uh, these sanctions are remarkable uh, because, uh, in two respects, uh, they are both united and comprehensive. United means that there are no loopholes, that uh, in the past, uh, the Russians thought that if they would expect some problem with the United States, uh, they will sell uh, in advance uh, dollar-denominated assets, they would increase the euro-denominated uh, part of their portfolio, and uh, this way they will save the bulk of their reserves. Now it's united. The United States, Great Britain for the uh, British pound-denominated reserves, the Eurozone and the European Union, for euro-denominated reserves, Japanese for yen-denominated reserves, and yesterday even Switzerland, the Swiss, because lots of Russian uh, assets are in Swiss francs, especially not so much government bonds as commercial bank deposits, money market mutual funds, CDs, certificates of deposit, and so the Swiss joined it. So it is comprehensive, there is no escape all Western, Australia, of course. So all Western denominated, Western currency denominated assets are blocked. Uh, the only country with big part of foreign exchange reserves of Russia uh, that didn't join is China. Some of the reserves uh, of Russian Central Bank are in renminbi, which is uh, yuan, the Chinese currency. So it is united. It's across the board. And it is comprehensive. So if you look through all this legal language, which is uh, convoluted, uh, one thing transpires that, that sanctions attack two big parts of the foreign exchange reserves. One is government bonds. And government bonds are held on the computers of the central banks of the countries whose governments issued these bonds. So for the United States, it is United States Treasury bonds, and they're held on the computers of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which is the agent of the United States government. And uh, Euro-denominated uh, assets are uh, held on the computers of the European Central Bank in Frankfurt and national central banks of all Eurozone countries. And the same for Great Britain and Japan. So. Uh, the sanctions are uh, formulated in a way that those assets are frozen. Then there is another part, the commercial bank deposits, private banks, commercial banks in Switzerland and everywhere in the West. And those don't have bonds and those are, have deposits. The Russian Central Bank has probably CDs which have some a bit higher rate of return money market mutual funds and savings deposits. So the language of the sanctions is transactions with the Russian Central Bank are prohibited, which means that assets are not frozen, but the Russians cannot withdraw them. They cannot come like I can come to my bank with a debit card, put it in the slot and withdraw some cash. They cannot do it. They cannot ask commercial banks to wire them so many millions of dollars or British, Great Britain, Britain pounds 
all euros. They cannot call, let's say, they have lots of assets in Austria. So they cannot all call the Austrian Central Bank and tell them, tell the European Central Bank uh, that uh, we are selling Austrian bonds. The proceeds are on the computer of the Austrian Central Bank, and you will wire uh, you will wire cash uh, to Moscow. Or they cannot go to the Swiss bank and tell them, all right, we have a deposit. We have hundred million dollars uh, on uh, deposit with your bank, a credit service. And we ask you to wire us, let's say, uh, a few billion dollars there. And the bank said, yeah, you own it, but we cannot do it. We're under the sanctions. So transactions with you are prohibited. You cannot get your money. So this is a total separation of ownership and control. No one confiscates anyone's assets. The Russian central bank, the Russian government owns these assets, but they cannot use them. They cannot use them to support the ruble. They cannot use them to support their banks. So if we look then at the 630 plus billion US dollar foreign reserve that Russia owns and as you just explained so some of these assets securities for instance they're going to be in the computers of foreign banks and now russia cannot access it so in essence some assets on russia's balance sheet has been frozen just as you say but they also there are also other assets right in russia's foreign reserves for instance gold so can Russia start to sell gold or perhaps sell other assets they have in this reserve? Or are they basically banned also to access financial markets in order to sell this gold or sell the other securities they have, even if they're not sitting with a Western Central Bank right now? Let's look at the numbers. So the, uh, the latest we know is that the Central Bank of Russia, the foreign exchange reserves, amount to $643 billion in all denominations, but uh, converted into dollars. It's one of the largest foreign exchange reserves in the world. Of course, China has $3.26 trillion. Taiwan, Japan, they have lots of reserves. But Russia is big in this respect. Unfortunately for Russia. How these reserves look, what is there? Uh, gold they have, yes. And they moved this gold from Manhattan. They used to be in the vaults of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. They moved it to Russia, to Moscow, uh, in, in expectation of some uh, prohibitions. And so they have about $139 billion by the latest count in the basement of the Russian Central Bank. Then they have some cash. Uh, one estimate is uh, I made uh, is $12 billion. It's very difficult to calculate. But some inside sources I saw are saying that they have more, $31 billion in cash uh, in, the, in the basement, in the walls of the Central Bank of Russia. $12 billion or 13, $31 billion, it's, it's, it's not a big deal compared with uh, $643 uh, billion of total. So of the total they have, 12 to 31, immediately available, disposable. They can throw it to support the banks. They can bail out banks. They have 139 billion 
dollars worth of gold. They have 84 billion dollars worth of Chinese bonds, and those are not frozen, and uh, they can uh, sell them, or they can ask the Chinese to redeem them, but this is an renminbi in yuan. It is not the currency that uh, supports anything in Russia. And then they have about 403 billion dollars in Western denominated assets. Of those, about 250 billion are government bonds, United States, France, Germany, Great Britain, Japan, and about 150 billion dollars are non non-state securities, meaning that those are bank deposits and some corporate bonds. Those are frozen. 403 billion dollars are frozen. So what is left is cash, Chinese bonds, and gold. Three things, cash, Chinese bonds, and gold. Cash they can use. Let's say it is 31 billion. Uh, Chinese bonds they can sell for Chinese currency, which doesn't do them much good. And then it is gold. Gold is highly liquid now. The gold market, global global gold market is huge. And it's very easy to sell. The problem is not to sell. The problem is to get the money back because they don't, they don't sell for the sake of selling or to have receivables or to have IOUs. They need cash now. And transactions are prohibited. No one in the world is allowed uh, to make transactions, dealers, private dealers, brokers, they cannot do it. So some may avoid it. Some people may be in some, I don't know, in Saudi Arabia, may buy it and discount uh, cheap, uh, but they don't want to fall under the United States sanctions. Russia is not important for them. So generally, uh, the only place they can sell gold is China. So China is important for them because China can buy gold and China can redeem Chinese bonds. And the Russians could say it a week ago, five days ago, but not today. They could say to, uh, to uh, the Chinese, all right, we have 84 billion dollars of your bonds, your obligations. Or oh, here is a deal for you. It's a very good deal. You give us, we sell it back to you, 84 billion for 50 or for 60, huge haircut, huge discount. It's very, it's very good deal for you, but you pay us not in yuans, you pay us in dollars and euros. That deal hypothetically was possible several days ago, but now the Chinese are trying to stay away from this. And they already refused to give the letters of credit to their own companies in dollars to buy uh, Russian energy. So they are even not facilitating trade between Russia and China. And they indicated very clearly they are not going to bail out, uh, bail out Russia. They don't want this war. They don't want to break up with Russia but they don't want to help Russia out either, and they want to stay away from this. Uh, the United States is very important for them. Europe is very, Europe very important for them. Russia is not important for them. Only 2% of Chinese exports are to Russia. 17.5% of Chinese exports are to the United States, 15% to Europe, 
10% to Hong Kong, 5% to Japan. So Hong Kong is five times more important for them than Russia. Indeed. So if we look at it this then, so we have these sanctions affecting Russia's ability to basically pay for its imports. And I assume it was the assumption of, um, of the Russian government that they would be able to tap into some of these resources in order to pay for its imports if things were going to get very difficult for them. So there may be, as you say, some payment solutions that could be mediated in countries like China, but they are very small and uh, they are shrinking. So is it possible to say then that these sanctions and these measures basically amount to a cancellation of the convertibility of the ruble? This may come to this because the Russian government has very few options left. Already on Thursday and Friday, uh, they imposed capital controls. They, uh, the Ministry of Finance, demanded that all exporters, meaning natural gas and uh, oil and metals, uh, repatriate, return to Russia immediately, physically, 80% of their foreign exchange revenue. So, and of course, sell to the Russian Central Bank at uh, the official exchange rate, which is below value, and the Russian Central Bank will have the cash flow from the export revenues. So since there are long-term contracts for the sale of natural gas and energy and the oil, uh, they will get, get some cash flow and they will immediately throw it to the market and uh, to support the ruble. So that's the only kind of little flow that they can have every day, every week. And then they banned all foreigners in Russia, meaning uh, foreign companies, foreign businesses, branches of major Western corporations and uh, that act in Russia. They do not allow them to take out of Russia their dollar account, dollar deposits. So generally, uh, they effectively froze the assets of Western companies in Russia so that they could use this dollar. It's not much, and it is kind of one-time measures. They cannot do it every week. They've already done it. And they prohibit the Russians uh, to take money out of Russia and to open accounts abroad. So there are capital controls, which means that convertibility is already partially reduced or partially canceled. But the next step they will have to do, I don't see them not doing it, is that they will tell Russian depositors who have their accounts denominated in dollars and euros in the Russian banks, uh, that they are forcibly converted into rubles. We have the state of emergency, and therefore we cannot honor your dollar-denominated and euro-denominated uh, deposits. We do not confiscate them. You own them, you have them, but we just convert them into the rubles. So if you want to get some money out of the bank, you can have it in rubles, you cannot have it in dollars and euros. So they abolish this way convertibility in the banking system for customers. But then the next step, they will have to abolish convertibility altogether and close the exchange bureaus because it is still the run on exchange. People come with their rubles, they want to get dollars, there are not enough dollars. And uh, on Friday, I mean, uh, 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 yes, on, on Thursday, the central bank allowed $1 billion 
to go to the exchange, uh, currency exchanges to support the ruble, just 1 billion. On Friday, it was uh, less than a billion. And on Monday, they just didn't have the money. They said, we don't do market interventions. Let the ruble fall. I assume that measures like these and the turbulence in Russian financial markets right now also will change assets and liabilities profoundly in the country. So how, how do you think this is going to play into Russia's internal debt market? The country has itself, I mean, the state, the Russian state has a low public debt and low public debt in countries with surplus income from international exchange. That usually means that private debt is going to be pretty high. So will the new sanctions have an impact on household and corporate debt and the financing of these debts? Yeah, this is a very important question. Uh, because I read some articles uh, that uh, Russia may default on its uh, external debt, but like you said exactly, that the external debt is very low, so largely it is a corporate debt. Uh, there, are not, there is not much uh, private household or individual debt to foreign, uh, foreign countries, but unfortunately for them, the corporate debt is about, uh, the latest I remember, is 472 billion dollars of their major corporations, natural gas, uh, Gazprom, this company, and uh, uh, oil companies, and uh, banks, banks, all uh, Russian banks, all a lot of debt to Western banks. So that, the debt service, uh, depends on the schedule of the debt service. We can look up, probably every quarter, they have to repay some debt matures, and they have to repay 20 billion, 30 billion, 50 billion, depends on the schedule of the debt. So not the entire debt, 472 billion dollars, is due tomorrow, only a fraction of it. So it's debt service. They have to pay interest, and they have to redeem the debt that is matured. That, they, it would be very hard for them to do. In 2008, 2009, during the financial crisis, and then in 2014, uh, when sanctions were imposed on uh, Russian uh, financial institutions after they annexed Crimea, uh, the central bank used its reserves and spent about one third of its foreign exchange reserves to bail out private Russian debt to the foreigners so that Russian corporations will not default. They could do it in 2014 only because there were no sanctions on the central bank. Now the central bank itself is effectively bankrupt in terms of foreign exchange, uh, foreign currencies. So it cannot, even if it wanted to, it cannot help the debt service of Russian corporations. So every Russian corporation, which is not under sanctions, will have to renegotiate with its creditors. Indeed. So let us talk a little bit about how you think this is going to affect uh, Russia's strategy. It is a difficult, if not impossible, of course, to say how these sanctions, along with other sanctions they have, that have been imposed, will affect the Kremlin's strategy going forward. But one thing 
we can say is that these central bank sanctions make it impossible for Russia to manage the economic and financial fallout from the war, from the war in the way that they had planned. Over the years, Russia has built up reserves on the back of its exports of oil and gas. These reserves, as you say, they were tapped into during the 2008-2009 crisis, and then again during uh, 2014 when the first round of sanctions came in. And um, they have been built up again since then, allowing Russia, I think, to approach the war in Ukraine now with the notion that it was economically and financially sovereign and that it would be capable of upholding the value of the ruble and help uh, Russian businesses to repay the debt to foreign, to foreign holders if that was necessary. Now it seems this is not going to be possible, at least not for long. So how long do you think Russia can hold out without really serious financial and economic consequences? One thing is clear under this, uh, this situation, that every estimate, we make today how bad it is, tomorrow will look as like an underestimate because it's just uh, an avalanche. Uh, let, uh, you're in Brussels, uh, so it's a Frank, uh, I believe it's a Francophone city. So let me remind you uh, what the great French poet Paul Valéry said. I don't remember how that sounds in French, but in English it is to quote, the future is not what it used to be. So we look to the future. The future is not what it used to be. It's a, uh, he was a great wit. Uh, so this is, uh, we look at the future and it turns out it is worse than we expected. So there, is, there are some uh, immediate effects on the currency and the ruble and on the banking system. And the banking system would have hard time to sustain. But there is also a long-term effect on the Russian economy, intermediate effect, which started and will continue, namely that, given the falling value of the ruble, successful, profitable uh, companies, businesses, will demand payments, payments in dollars because they can export their goods. And uh, from Russian customers who want to buy energy, natural gas, oil, uh, want to buy wheat, uh, grain, want to buy some uh, spare parts, uh, they will demand payments in dollars and euros. And, uh, of course, their customers, uh, regular businesses, they, they cannot pay. And uh, so uh, the economy will sort of break apart. There will be successful businesses which will dollarize and trade in dollars. And there will be less successful or unsuccessful uh, failing businesses that will trade in rubles, they would be able to pay for inputs, there will be barter. Russia <coughs> or the Soviet Union, they used barter in 1990, 1991 when ruble was falling. They can do it again. The economy will be bifurcated. The good part dollarized, the bad part will have, will, will be in the great contraction, a great depression. Uh, work stoppages, they couldn't pay wages. Uh, people get unemployed, unemployment will increase. The supply chains, the supply chains will be attacked. The supply chains will be uh, breaking up. And uh, we saw during the COVID how the supply chains are very important in every economy, even in uh, most advanced Western economies. In Russia, it will be even worse. And so there will be shortages. 
there will be lots of problems and they don't have central planning as they used to have in the Soviet Union. They don't have central planning to enforce deliveries. In the Soviet Union, payments, non-payments, arrears, uh, it was not a big deal because the government could enforce deliveries. And there was the input, output flow, and uh, businesses and enterprises could produce. Now the government cannot force the suppliers to sell for rubles to their customers. And so the supply chains will break down and the Russian economy will be in a free fall. And I assume the prime way that the Russian Central Bank will try to manage some of these consequences is, is of course, to print more rubles. And if you print more rubles, you're going to have a sharp increase in inflation. Are, are you expecting galloping inflation to return pretty soon? Gradually, yes. But like we discussed before, it is a vicious circle. The more rubles they print, the more inflation they have, the greater is the run from the rubles and the dollars. So it fits upon itself. It's a vicious circle. It's a positive feedback. The worse it gets, the worse it begets. Indeed, indeed. Well, Michael, it's been wonderful to have this chance to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me from this conversation. We are talking about an area which is, of course, highly technical, and it may be difficult for some to imagine how the plumbing of modern financial policies are done. I think most people thinking about a foreign reserve would assume that this is a pile of big cash that you have stored in the basement of your own central bank. And it's not an entry in the balance sheets of a foreign central bank. So it is amazing to see how we are now catching up extraordinarily fast with modern finance and how it works also in geopolitics. So it's been a great pleasure to, talking to you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you. Th thank you so much. Uh, merci beaucoup. Au revoir.